Hi, I'm Marcus Peter Rempel. And I'm Alana Lewandowski. Welcome to The Ferment. Something good is rising. So here we are, Alana, um, and our our guest today is you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we uh, some it's some time ago already. Really, when we were just starting to re- do these podcast recordings, you and I each took a, a turn interviewing each other, and uh, and today we're going to share the interview that we did with you. And so it was a it is a little while ago. I, as I recall, you had just kind of. Uh, you and Ian and your your boys had just made the move uh, onto your place on the land there. H- how long have you been on the land now? Uh, we've been here now two two years. Okay. Yeah. Wow, we've been we've been working out this podcast for a while then too. I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll hear in the interview about uh, you know what was going through your thoughts then about that move anything uh, in terms of like looking back to that moment and your experience on the land now that comes to mind when you think about uh the the time that you've been where you've been uh well i mean really it's like i i would have to listen to my thoughts <laughs> again right. to really know where i was at it's amazing how time brings different iterations of ourselves yeah uh, um and and how, you know, really that that we're living death life cycles all the time. You know, mm. since at the time that you were we were chatting, um, you know, my youngest is three, my oldest is five and a half, and so that thing I would have been in a very different mindset and just in the way I was parenting at the time, and and also just. Uh, like every single day we get to know the land a, a little bit differently. So like just uh, just two days ago, we discovered a whole Saskatoon grove we didn't know we had that here. So oh wow, it's and it's like right along a tree line that's you know, very exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that'll be a place that your family is gonna. That's going to be part of your rhythm on the land from yes. now until you're you're not there anymore. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And the way we discovered it is because we're moving our forest pasture pigs along that that uh, that tree line where all the suckers are growing up. Oh so yeah. So they have shade and they get to be who they are. <laughs> Root around. Yeah. Dig dig the <laughs> dig the soil with their faces like yeah, only pigs can do. That's right, and they love the forest. That's their natural, natural place. So that's that's beautiful. Why don't we talk a little bit about some of your new projects, Alana? You're you're starting a new album. Uh, you just you just launched uh, a meditation album for children. Um, what's what's happening for you creatively this these days? Um, well, mostly so the the meditation with children album was in collaboration with a, a fellow who worked in the education sector for forty years in Ireland. His name's Noel Keating, and in his quote unquote retirement, <laughs> he <laughs> spent I think five years, and he's still working at it and uh, in that serving in that capacity. And he brought a form of meditation centering prayer to. 150 schools in Ireland 
And he wrote a book called Meditation with Children, which sort of gives a little window into the experience, the interior experience of the children. And it's a resource for teachers and parents. And and then we made this album and it's that's kind of what the album is an extension of that. It's really uh, reflecting on the interior experience the children had in sitting in silence and then also um, sort of gives some gui- guidance and uh, sets the tone for. And what's really exciting is like there's an interfaith camp in Arkansas that's like looking at heroes from across uh, the Jewish, Muslim, and Christian traditions hmm. throughout, throughout history um, that used this album all week long. <laughs> and, and so I feel like I really did my job as far as trying yeah. to, trying to um, be pan-cultural and also sitting in my own tradition. So, And then the next project that I'm working on uh, it's really come about because I've been so um, reconnected to the land. Like I grew up in the wilds and grew up raising, like growing, we grew our own food and hunted our own food. And it's not new to me. I'm not coming from the city into a right. into an, a rural space. This is my natural habitat. <laughs> um, but uh just being on the land from with with all of my life experience as uh, is, is an interesting thing so i read this book called and it's a strange strange connection but it makes sense to me i i read a book by a couple named Sean and Beth Doherty and they wrote a book published by Chelsea Green publishing called the independent farmstead Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was rereading, maybe for the third time or fourth time, Cynthia Bergeau's The Wisdom Jesus. Hmm. And through their understanding of the farm as font, and through Cynthia's perceptive eye for this telltale sign of abundance activism <laughs> uh, that you see at in Jesus, um, I kind of got this download of of uh, seeing a, another side uh, to him. And then mm. once once I I saw um, John Dominic Crossan's presentation on how um, Jesus moved to uh, Capernaum, and and at the same time that the Sea of Galilee was renamed the Lake of uh, Ti- Tiberius. Mm. Um, and the Sea of Galilee was overtaken by a commercial fishery. Um, And all of his friends are like, they live in these fishing villages peppered across the the coastline. And so seeing him um, in a, in a sense through John Dominic Crossan's work, potentially as a food sovereigntist activist as well, I, um, I'm working. I'm, I'm working on a new album this summer that is about um, bringing us Christians, in particular, um, out of the pie in the sky, because we're so prone to being heaven bound. 
Mm. Um, mm. That we, I think that it's in part the reason why we've been so um, slow to have a have a heartfelt response to the ecological crisis, and in part have played such a a reprehensible role. <laughs> um, and so. Uh, because we're heaven bound, right? And so this yeah, project yeah. is about bringing us back down to earth, realizing if incarnation is a thing, that this, these bodies of ours are going to be planted here. Mm. And um, and so I'm going to be playing with uh, looking at us as earth dwellers and really bringing that home, literally. And then um, working with these traits of Jesus that maybe aren't looked at as much as as uh, the regular plot lines. <laughs> so wow, wow, that's amazing. I, I, I like it resonates for me with a couple of recent stories. One is one is from one of our uh, our guests who uh, we've interviewed, and uh, have we uploaded that one yet? I, with Stan McKay. Um, uh, no, it's not I, up yet. But that, that one's that one's coming. That one, that um, struck so deep for me. I carry it almost every day. Yeah. So, um, so we have a, a guest who our, our listeners will be hearing soon, Stan McKay, who's uh, a Cree elder from from one of uh, many Cree communities dotted along uh, our Sea of Galilee, uh, Lake Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, recently, when I saw Stan, he was uh, bringing a petition around that was uh, trying to push back on. Uh, a practice right now of government officials going to his community and many others along the lake and slapping cash on the barrel, trying to persuade uh, people who have uh, fishing licenses, commercial fishing licenses, uh, to uh, to give up their fish quota uh, so that less indigenous families will be ha- making their living from fishing on, on Lake Winnipeg and, uh, and more fish will be freed up for the, the tourism industry. Um, hmm. And they're they're showing up at a time of the year when it's it's sort of in between seasons and and cash flow is low, and uh, and then with one cash transaction, a uh, a license that's been passed, you know, from from uh, father to son to father to son uh, for generations uh, gets bought up and and is no more. Um, so Stan was very concerned about that. I. I I'd be interested to. Uh, I wonder if he's come across Dominic Crossan's work on on uh, uh, you know, Jesus Lake also being uh, commercialized by uh, by colonial presence. Yeah, and the fact that he moved into it, that he stepped, like he actually intentionally stepped into it, and his friends. That's where, like Mary Magdalene, mo- most of the disciples, that's where they hailed from, were different villages across, like around that coastline. So it really puts a different, a different spin. And and certainly, what you're talking about with Stan, it's just that same old story. And you know, for me, who sees Jesus as, uh, uh, you know, a pretty big hint about who God is. Um. It just that's that's what I want to kind of yeah. you know hit home is yeah. even just like getting to the point where you can say the it's just the imprint on the mind coin that belongs to Caesar <laughs> like mm. it's not even the the mind coin itself it's the imprint right that's it that's it the minerals the minerals <laughs> the didn't weren't weren't made by him either no. 
that made so it, really yeah. if you think about give to wow. caesar what is caesar's it's the stamp yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> and then so. the thing about the meditation album and and uh and the the work of of doing prayer with with children contemplative prayer like i was talking with a, a friend at at sandy soto just the other day about the kind of I don't know if it's a delicious irony or, or what to call it, but just this, the the reality that in the place where we live, it's uh, it's indigenous people that are reintroducing public prayer to our our elementary schools, and you know some some generations after the Lord's prayer was uh, was taken out uh, of of public school, and uh, yeah, that that that's which you know that just has all kinds of like. There's there's the fact that yes, we like our children, like all of us, are spiritual beings and need mm-hmm. spiritual practice and spiritual formation, and also the reality of like what do we do with the fact that humans have different ways of praying and we've had some pretty bad habits of arm twisting, you know, one people's way of praying onto everybody else, um, and, and and when that and, prayer is connected to. Uh, the pa- the state power. <laughs> state power, yeah, exactly. We, through state power, yeah, we've we've arm twisted right. people into a certain way of praying. Yeah, all of that. Well, um, yeah, I I really look forward to kind of going back into the the archives of 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 your thoughts, <laughs> um, and and uh, and your story, uh, which we spent a fair time with uh, in in the interview. Which is, uh, yeah, I think a story that our listeners will find very, very interesting. Um, in terms of maybe just podcast housekeeping, one one thing I want to do, I feel like such a putz, Alana. Um, we've been doing these preambles for some time now, and I don't think we've once yet acknowledged our our podcast collaborators, uh, Samantha Clausen and Matt Weeb, and really. Once, once you and I turn off the microphones and, and, <laughs> and hit stop on the recording, our job is is nearly done uh, in terms of uh, the, the podcasting. And, and Samantha and Matt have been the ones to... Uh, uh, Samantha does all the, the editing of, of the audio and, and then puts it into a package that, that Matt gets out into the interweb with the magic that he has at... <laughs> 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 whatever those computer guys do uh he's he's one of them he's he's one of the initiated and uh yeah so we could not do this without them and i'm just so incredibly grateful for their uh smarts and their generosity and uh and the input they have into uh you know ideas about who to interview and and just the the overall direction of this this work and, yeah, uh, and and also just to say about both of them too, Samantha and Matt, is that they, a part of what makes the podcast the podcast is their lens. Absolutely. And the way in which Samantha, when she's editing and the way she hears and her own theological yeah. breadth and uh, yeah. she's a one of the smartest gals I've ever come yeah. across. <laughs> and, yeah, absolutely. Um, as, and Matt is... Uh, the the two of them bring a lens that they that help everyone to look you know look through. So yeah, yeah very they're, grateful. They're much more than technicians. Yeah, absolutely. 
so so big thanks to them. I also want to name our 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 Patreon sponsors. Our, pa- <laughs> our I also want to thank our Patreon sponsors: Asher Clausen, Mike Spring, Steve McKenna, Steve Bell, Karen Nastkolb, and Elizabeth Redekop. Yeah, their generosity is uh, is much much appreciated. And uh, and if other folks uh, who are listening to this wanna wanna be part of supporting this work, we've had we've had over four thousand downloads now, which like that's that's amazing to me. Like yeah. I I feel like like we're kind of hosting like a university seminar, uh, and and we've had four thousand attendees, or or I guess if we d- divided by the ten, we've had four hundred. We've had four hundred people you know roughly uh, probably probably more because not everyone listens to everything you know, and not come, everyone downloads either <laughs> right you know is is sitting in on these on these uh, conversations that we're hosting um and and one of the one of the really amazing things about living in this age we're living in in terms of internet dissemination of of ideas and music is that with with fairly little expense it's it's possible for for that kind of reach and um and uh you know as the saying goes like if we had if i had a dollar for every time dot 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 yeah if, if we had if we had uh if if we had a dollar for every one of those downloads like we could uh we could for example pay samantha uh you know a real wage for for the time that she puts in mm-hmm. and and i'd and i'd really really love to do that so if you're listening to this and and you're enjoying what you're what you're listening to, um, it doesn't it doesn't take much if uh, if all those folks that are digging the ferment, you know, just just pull out some pocket change um, for every time that they uh, that they listen. You know, this this could really become a sustainable livelihood for for uh, uh, some of the team, at least. Um, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, and then maybe we'll just mention we'll we'll tag on a song again at the end of this uh, conversation with with you, Alana. And you were you were suggesting him him from the desert. Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's called him him from the desert. Yeah, t- t- I love that song. T- tell us about you know why that song for this particular conversation. Well. So I had that, like in the in the talk we had, I probably speak about how I was in the music business before. Yep. And and then I left. And then I I very like kind of gingerly came back through this mode modality of having my spirituality under the same roof. Mm. And that song, Hymn from the Desert. Uh, was written in Gimli, Manitoba, uh, when I was uh, basically had just a few possessions in my car and was fixing up a cabin in order to stay there. And then eventually was staying at the monastery, like the Benedictine monastery and so on. So it came out of a time of uh, a lot of suffering and loss. And then it was also a turning point where I I stood on the beach, actually, of Lake Winnipeg, <laughs> and there was a yeah, moment... Not, that's another fishing village, Gimli. Yeah. Nice, nice link. Yeah, and I actually stood there, and that that was where that standing place was actually 
the very first time I had nothing and knew mm. how beloved and infused with, you know, with the spirit and love of God, I was mm. completely with nothing. And so that song, Hymn from the Desert, was um, just really looking at this uh, stark reality of my life and realizing that that's, it was a kind of this, I had to be, the way was through. <laughs> mm. So, so yeah, I thought that was a good, a good song for this because it was really the beginning of a, a very new and fresh chapter, although it didn't, I didn't know it <laughs> at the time. Beautiful. Well, folks, I am delighted to present to you a conversation with Alana Lewandowski, uh, followed up by a beautiful song, Hymn from the Desert. Enjoy. Hey. Well, hello. How's it going there in uh, Riding Mountain? Oh, it's it's good. It's um, I'm in my shipping container studio, and the sun is shining through the window. It get I get a lot of passive solar heat because of, of the position that we put the the trailer. So it's nice, and it's warming up today after being like so, so so cold. I've seen that picture. I've seen a few pictures of you uh, basking in the sunlight uh, <laughs> there, which is which is great. One of these days, one of these days, I will come visit you on your uh, rural bit of paradise there. Oh, that would be great. Um, so anyway, we're into the conversation. I I don't uh, normally when we have an interview we say welcome to the ferment. It's it's uh, it's uh, I can't really welcome you to your own house. Uh, um, <laughs> But I'm I'm excited to be uh, to be having this conversation, and I I thought I'd like to start by asking uh, about your story. We're we're interested here at the ferment ferment in ideas, but also really in in the witness of people's stories. Um, and so I'd like to ask you about your spiritual journey. And I know that's a term that uh, often has a kind of implied script, as in. Uh, when did you quote get saved? <laughs> um, I'd like <laughs> well, to ask. I'd like response. to ask the question without really imposing a script, but just acknowledging that as a human being, you're a spiritual being, growing, changing, maturing. Um, so, in any way that feels natural to you, how how do you track the arc of your story as a spiritual being in this world, Alana? Well, uh, first of all, the uh... Yeah, often there is a script that's that uh, people might expect. It's about like how did I come to God or or whatever. But these days, my the way I tell my story is is changing. It's hmm. it's transforming. It's healing, uh, and I think part of that is because I've started to comprehend this concept of of integral. Uh, you know, as put forth by the philosopher Ken Wilber. And oh, okay, go, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'll just sort of develop that before I just go, get into the, like, details of the story in the sense that I, I've changed the way I tell it because I'm transforming and mm. healing and recognize uh, that I needed what 
kind of went before. And so, mm. you know, f- f- for instance, um, that this concept of, of integral is based on evolution. So you have uh, what's called holons, <laughs> and the holon that went before the existing holon is required. But the holon that's now the, the most current one is not needed by the previous one. And so I... As I, I, I begin to tell this story, I want to sort of set the context for that because there is trauma in the, in the history, uh, spiritual trauma in the history of the story, and it's being healed. But the other side of it is that I look at the history of my ancestors and the heritage that they carried, and I do have an appreciation for the fact that I am standing in a lineage that was passed on to me in whatever form it was passed on. So that's kind of, I wanted to sort of precurse that because um, it's not just this, you know, now I'm a post-evangelical, thank God, or whatever, mm. you know, that kind of thing. So so my story is, um, I'm, a, I'm a settler, I, I'm from settler heritage, I grew up in the country, in the wilderness almost, uh, in Manitoba, Canada, right by a national park, close to, you know, on the other side of the national park where I'm, where I'm living today. We've just moved back here, but now we're living on the south side and I grew up on the east, northeast side. Oh yeah, so you really were in the boonies there. Oh yeah. And so uh, I have a very sort of, I have a spiritual connection to the land and also as a, as a child, uh, began to start asking silently asking the question, uh, who was here before us? Because our heritage is such that we were the very, very first that this family was the very first farming family to ever be on that property. Hmm. But, but I found arrowheads and rock hammers my my grandmother had a rock hammer as a door stopper. <laughs> and so <laughs> for her screen door, I'm serious. Yeah. It was it huh. was the the norm. Uh and so there were people uh on the land prior to me being there and um and I have a very precious special understanding of that because of how much time as a child I spent on the land. Particularly, my mom raised Arabian horses, and I spent a lot of time on horseback in the wilds of mm. Manitoba. Mm. And up in, right up into the, the farm bordered the national park, so I was up, well up into the, the national park on horseback and on foot. And so I, ha- I have a kind of an interesting background in the sense of, of place mm. and then there's this other background of the kind of church that I was raised in, which was sort of a, an attempt. It was an evangelical church, but it was sort of an attempt to say everyone is welcome in its own, I guess, its own iteration. This idea that, that a lot of the people that sort of wanted to create this community uh, didn't want legalism to be at the heart of it and, and all of this and f- felt, you know, this whole notion of, of 
the evangelical movement was such that it, it, initially was sort of observing uh, the rote uh, nature of of a mainstream church or a liturgical experience and kind of sensed that they wanted the heart to be there. And of course, this was at this time influenced by, you know, the 1970s, 60s and 70s and this sort of individual uh, experience of, of spirituality and it, and it just sort of happened to be that it it uh, that's how it affected evangelical Christianity, right? You know, like I uh, you know where you see that '70s font with these books like "Hang Loose with Jesus" and you know "Hotline to Heaven" and and all of these um, suggestions that prayer uh, is not prayer unless it's personally designed every single time and you know to read a prayer is always wrote and all of the rest so that at the heart of it i can see from where i'm sitting today that the intention was to bring heart into the tradition but Mm, again yeah yeah uh the heart to bring heart into the tradition by eliminating the tradition (laughs) um (laughs) is to knock out it's to knock out that hole on that i'm talking about uh, it's the footing that to knock it out from underneath of you, mm. and it gets it gets in in the um, I guess almost it gets a little bit flaky uh, because there's no root there's no roots there's no understanding of where we come from yeah and so so uh, the other side to it is that this this community it was small it didn't gather in its uh, traditional church building. And that there was a, a twist, which I really appreciate. Um, and we basically, we, we were singing the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, nice. So, so there was an acoustic music element to it with a, a lot of rooted musical tradition. And uh, that's sort of how I ended up. Really, I mean, part of my experience in connecting to music the way I have comes from there and, and the way that so many, so many musicians and songwriters and singers will say, you know, historically, there's a lot of them that come from a church that sang out and mm-hmm. a church that had a sort of a deep musical tradition. And, and so that's another, another thing I'm, I'm thankful for. Now, carrying that forward into my teen years and so on and so forth, I was exposed to many different uh, iterations of Christianity, um, the charismatic movement, uh, the Presbyterians and Reformed uh, Calvinists, and uh, the Mennonites. Um, I'm personally not Mennonite, uh, but most of my friends were, and as we approached our like our teen years and experienced that i had many friends that were sent off to boarding school <laughs> cuz their parents read their diary or <laughs> you know that that kind of thing in in my case uh i was fortunate that uh, my parents particularly my mom was she's a painter and mm. so she's got this element of of um, the arts that are, are very, very important to her. And so I was exposed also to um, Francis Schaeffer, 
the founder of Labrie. And he, you know, um, I know that Brian McLaren will often reference Francis Schaeffer as being sort of a breath of fresh air in the in the world that he was in, um, which is very similar to my world. And it, it was just nice because Francis Schaeffer gave us permission to um, experience the arts. And so that was definitely influential as well. And it, it influenced my parents in allowing for, uh, quote unquote, secular music in the house. My mom and my dad, both, you know, children of the 60s and 70s, um, huge fans of the songwriters, especially my mom, the Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, all the, you know, she loves great music. And, mm. and so I was exposed to that in, within my house as well. So, so there wasn't, uh, you know, some of my friends were getting tracts, <laughs> you know, these <laughs> against, you know, these, uh, you know, evil rock and rollers or whatever. And even in the, in the 90s, this was happening. And so I feel quite fortunate that I had that kind of exposure. And so it was kind of a natural thing for me to just move into uh, the space of, of making music as I, as I left home. And there was always this element of, um, you know how Leonard Cohen will uh, just has this way of bringing spirit into his poetry and mm-hmm. sort of asking these questions. And, uh, and I think uh, that I, I was mostly failing at the attempt to, uh, to do that, but it was partly what drew me in to songwriting uh, and was this, this element of asking those questions around uh, spirituality and, and sort of, dipping beneath the surface of things with with um the way you can weave your words and so that's been like um uh, a long love affair 20 years now for me of just sort of developing that that's and um that's played a huge role in in my spiritual journey now i never quite left officially um, but I certainly strayed <laughs> and I think that I will use the word strayed in a very positive light. Um, Fred Beekner said, uh, live your life like a drunken sailor for at least part of your life, something like that for the sake of God, if you believe in God, for the sake of the world, if you believe in the world. And so I, I did have, uh, most of my twenties. Um, I was touring as a songwriter and uh, definitely had an air, I suppose, of cynicism surrounding my trust in in the church and my trust in uh, particularly <laughs> fundamentalism and all its trappings. And so, just worked on uh, on healing from that, and it was a long and, journey. <laughs> and would that like would that have been a point in your life where you would have? used that word fundamentalism to describe the the community you came out of yeah oh for sure yeah 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 like at at the time i i didn't have the expansive uh my heart hadn't expanded to the point where i can hold it all and i, I think that's uh that's fair i think we have to have a time where um we can just express our hurt 
and uh, and just you know the, uh, go through the process of it, and then hopefully come out on the other side with a, a, a wider position of love um, and seeing that the people uh, were probably trying their best and um, are just humans. <laughs> um, but at the time, for sure, I, I, hell, I protected myself, I think, with uh, deep cynicism. And, and it's my default even today. I have to say, <laughs> mm. I can, I can easily, um, I could easily bond with others using cynicism to sort of scapegoat a, a community that, that hurt me, um, in order to protect myself. That's a, that's a, a kind of the easy, but more difficult route in the long run. <laughs> so there's a, there's a shadow there, uh, and, and in a, like you, you began this conversation by talking about this idea of integral and, and, and of incorporating the shadow into, into one's moving forward. Um, in this particular, co I haven't, in this moment now, I, I haven't quite heard you name the shadow yeah. and I'm not sure if that you're doing that intentionally or is, is there like to give the listener some sense of. Like what? What did that hurt look like? Um, I think the biggest thing for me was the questions I I took uh, out of that experience was initially connected to the place of women in in the church and in the world mm. and how how so I almost flippantly people felt they could interpret God's perspective of women. Um, that's very, very painful when you're growing up with as a, any, any woman, as any girl. But, um, in my case, I, I had such a distinct, uh, intuition that I was sort of called into a place of study and, and wrestling and, mm. um, and p potentially leadership. Yeah. Uh, and at that time, it just felt like um, it was so there. It was so flippantly interpreted, and um, it felt very crushing. Um, and so there was that. But there's also partly the just the trauma of having prayed the sinner's prayer uh, as a small child. Um, you know, everybody had good intentions, but to, for me, I, my experience was such that I, uh, I really took it to heart that God couldn't look at me. Mm. Um, I felt so much shame, uh, mm. that, that God couldn't look at me. And so, uh, so there's this balance of, um, Moving forward, I know you and I had the just had the conversation with James Allison, and I've uh, even approached uh, you know this concept of original sin and the concept of original blessing from an integral perspective as well. I hold them both uh, in a particular light, you know. Um, but as a child, uh, I think it's a lot to ask of them to care to carry this thought that they're simply not good enough for God to look at them. 
Yeah. And so these, those two things, just those two things alone, let alone just um, unconscious patriarchy in general, just totally unconscious. It wasn't open patriarchy in the sense that everybody knew it was that. They wouldn't have even known how to use that word. But it was just there, you know? And so those are, I would say those are the two probably most painful aspects. And then the other thing is just, um, I guess, not being able to name your own uh, shadow, your own uh, transgressions, and seeing other people as more screwed up. And if only they could have a change of heart and come to the faith. And and uh, what I saw was just, you know, a lot of screwed up people, which is fine. But to suggest that others are, but you're not, is, you know, it's hypocritical. So There's a certain, there's a certain storyline that requires for, for this inner circle to be good and warm and cozy. It sort of yeah. requires those other people to be screwed up and lost. And uh, yeah, that's, that gets that's weird it. when... <laughs> But when humans but, are humans. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, it was just sort of, come, you know, pulling the rabbit out of the hat. Yeah. And um, as you pull it out, you, you, um, you decide, well, well, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> right? Because in the end, uh, I can say that I was passed, there was a heritage passed on to me that... Uh, Totally, I, 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 know, I know that if I hadn't been in that, uh, however, you know, imperfect it was, and uh, uh, I wouldn't be in the heritage the way I am today. So I just, it's like one of those things where you, you reach this point where I haven't thrown the baby out with the bathwater, right? And I'm very, I feel very grateful about that. And I was, I asked... Um, uh, Mirabai Star once about uh, how how drawn particularly to this Christian tradition I feel like I, I feel like I'm my feet should be here mm-hmm. and she called she said some people are called to be keepers of the jewel mm. and and I just it it just feels uh, it resonates for me and it's an authentic space to stand in for me. And, uh, yeah. And, it, and it's one of those things where you hold that balance of not just demonizing the past, but trying to, uh, trying to find the good in, in it. And yeah, it's, it's a hard journey to walk really, but, it, but that's partly how we're led on. <laughs> There's a question that, that occurs to me as it relates to uh not throwing the baby out with the bathwater as you say uh and and as you're talking about uh patriarchy being you know really one of the most stifling and painful aspects of your growing up experience one of the things that struck me about uh some of your work as a as a songwriter um is that uh like i noticed that you will still use uh, the language of the father quite quite comfortably uh, you, not long ago you you uh, uploaded a recording of uh, be thou my vision and you and you sang it in the in the traditional uh you know line i 
thou my true father, I thy true son. I grew up in a household where cleaning out that kind of male language out of the hymn book was was a really key move in claiming space for for women in in the church. And it's been interesting to me to notice that that that's not the yeah that, that's not the place where you kind of fight and and push but the the but it's clear to me that you are operating as a feminist so i'm i'm curious how how that that relationship to that male language and your own feminism holds together for you as a as a creative person good question uh i so first off, I'm going to disclaim, I've got this, this uh, album coming out with Thomas Merton. And I did not change Thomas Merton's language. I didn't spend the, the time shifting the pronouns. And uh, I'm just trusting, you know, so I know some people won't be able to hold it. Uh, and that's fine. But I'm trusting that people will be able to, again, see uh, what he's getting at versus the some of the language he's he's using. Um, I went through a time where I definitely, uh, probably f- maybe five or six years, where I it was very, very helpful for me to uh, use the, the feminine pronoun, and I do uh, use the feminine pronoun. For the divine. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to uh, spending my time dipping into old hymns and trying to impose a um, postmodern sensibility onto it. I I don't want to spend my time doing that because I feel like the song itself speaks for itself. And uh, I want to get, I guess for myself, I want to get deeper. Uh, I want to go deeper than that. I, I know the surface language is important for a lot of people um, in their healing journey, and I don't want to discount that at all. I think it's a very important question, and I think it's important to talk about. Um, but I'm also wary of putting all my energy there. Uh, so in particular, I, I actually I have a little bit of a I have a little bit of a, a red flag going up these days. I get a lot of emails from progressives in particular. Um, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, I recorded Leonard Cohen's song, Show Me the Place, on my album, Behold, I Make All Things New. And uh-huh. uh, there's some people who didn't realize that it was Leonard Cohen that wrote it. They thought I had written it, which is you know oh. a massive compliment because it's, completely brilliant <laughs> but yeah but uh uh the 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 biggest uh stumbling block for people and i get i've gotten a number of emails about it is this the term slave uh in in this it's show me the place where you want your slave to go show me the place um where the word became a man show me the place where the suffering began yeah and uh, there's definitely a tongue in cheek, I think, uh, or, or a, a bit of a resentment, I think, uh, and rightfully so on Leonard Cohen's part. I think he wrote it at the time that he discovered he was ripped off by his manager and whatever, and had to go out and serve when he was hoping to just retire into his 
wine cellar yes. <laughs> or whatever. Right. And, and, uh, and so this, you know, Leonard Cohen, uh, comes from, you know, Jewish background, Buddhist, uh, you know, definitely affiliated with the Buddhist tradition and is a poet beyond poet, beyond poet. And I think in our efforts these days to, um, heal from the patriarchy <laughs> and to heal from, uh, colonialism and, and, uh, the atrocities that have happened within, within that, um, we are at a point where we're sort of a little bit on a precipice that's a bit dangerous when it comes to um, poetry. And that, I, I don't have the answers for that. I just have this, a bit of a red flag that comes up. Um, and that's not to say that I want to use offensive language that would hurt people. But I wonder if there's a way for us to listen uh, at a frequency that allows for poetry. So mm. that's that's kind of where I'm at with it. Um, I'm very comfortable with Abba, uh, but I'm also comfortable with Ama. And I'm mm. comfortable with the beautiful one and the divine and uh, the ground of our being and all the metaphors. Mm. So I think w when we move from this metaphorical place into, um, there's a, there's a danger, I guess what I'm saying is if we're using the same level of consciousness as someone who's going to literal, like be literal, um, when you, when you do that to poetry, uh, there's a danger there, I think. All right. Half time. This is when we open up the virtual guitar case pass around the virtual collection plate. If you like what we're doing here, think about throwing some money in. We do this because we love it, but we also love our families. The hours we put into this podcast are hours we owe to them. They freed us up to do this work. Help us give something back. Throw in a 20, throw in a dollar, it's all good. Just click on the Patreon link. You can make a one-time donation or you can commit to something regular. Even something small but regular makes a big difference. Regular contributions mean a regular gig for this artist and this preacher. It lets us chase the dream and not the dollar. Enough said. Back to the reason you're here and we're here today. You know, it occurs to me that there's a, there's a parallel pattern between the two stories you've told of uh, growing up in a church that was trying to return to the heart of spirituality and in the process cut itself off from tradition and the, the dynamic you're describing among progressives who are uh, wanting to start over again in terms of resisting patriarchy and colonialism and and can fall into a way of of speaking and engaging that is is also uh, sort of similarly cutting itself off from from tradition and it, it's interesting to to see how you sort of you you saw the blind alley of that in your formative years and you're you're recognizing it again. Yeah, I th I think so and I want to be careful because first of all I'm not a person of color. 
And um, mm. I, I want to be careful in that uh, there is a time to have a discussion about the use of language and, and everything. Um, but I, I find that the people that have been most offended um, are, are people who are bringing themselves out of a fundamentalist background and sort of that's the language that they know. And it's the mm. pain that they know, and right. it's being imposed. It's, it's sort of being imposed onto onto the poetry, and yeah. so that's the thing that I I'm just uh, as I move forward at, as a as a poet, <laughs> um, that I'll probably suffer um, sometimes as somebody who tries to find that balance because I I'm very sensitive to uh, to the plight that people have been in and are in and I don't want to be insensitive to it but I also want to be true to true to the art form <laughs> and to the metaphors that are at our at our fingertips that are accessible for us to even just you know dance with this at all if we get rid of those where's the dance you know yeah I'd like to ask you, Alana, about being a mother. I, this is, I'm thinking of this in part, in part because we're talking. We've talked about gender roles, and I, you gave a concert here uh, in Bozizer some time ago, and you, I remember you saying something about uh, the transition from maidenhood to motherhood uh, having been a good one, and I was just struck by. I mean, that's maid, you know, maidenhood especially is a that's a that's very ancient language. Um, so again, it's 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 very traditional, uh, but I get the sense uh, in you of a restoration of something very fresh, even while it's while it's quite ancient. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just talk to me about being a mother. Well, for, first of all, it, um, it sounds traditional, but again, I, I when I speak in that in that way, I hold I, I'm speaking at a at a frequency that sees metaphor. <laughs> um, and so, uh, Jung had, uh, this way of, of, uh, looking at the archetypes and seeing them as, mm. as sort of, um, markers in, in, in our life. And we've, it is ancient. It's far more ancient than the Christian tradition. It's, it's, um, the, the term maidenhood might sound very European, but the indigenous people around the world, uh, used yeah. this, these terms and marked passing passages of yes. time, whether or not people became literal mothers or be, you know, uh, or gr literal grandmothers, uh, the crone, <laughs> um, these, these terms get used on, on that same level, that same frequency. And, and so for me, um, definitely in a literal way, because I did become a literal mother um, but I feel like the passage happened prior to becoming a mother, um, mm. because I, 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 I felt like I, another way to say it is I had a long, long term relationship with adolescence, uh, well into mm. my thirties <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and it was an overdue passage. Um, and I did, I actually marked it. I, I, um, I did a rite of passage uh, in the back country of Colorado for four days uh, with 
jugs of water and a tarp by myself. Mm. Uh, it was led by someone, but uh, I moved uh, on that passage. I moved from adolescence into adulthood very, very clearly. And so mm. uh, it feels fresh because I feel like we live in a very adolescent culture. Mm. Um, the way, even the way we argue, uh, the, what, how mm. we sling, what we sling at each other politically, uh, everything we're, we're operating at a very low level of consciousness <laughs> and not to say that adolescents have a low level of consciousness, but there's a, uh, there's an immaturity to the way we operate, um, in this culture. And I was mm. getting really tired of it. And in mm. particular, I, I also carried trauma from uh, being in the music industry for so long and felt like um, I was uh, required to look like, you know, um, a 15-year-old or whatever for the rest right. of my life. Yeah. 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 You know, the, 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 the statement was when I turned 30, well, you don't look 30, you know. And, right. oh, great, that's... And let's keep it that yeah, way. Yeah, let's make sure we keep keep it that way. And so there was no um, room for aging. And I, uh, and in, in the same way as I needed to, you know, move out of my little tiny uh, seedling pot <laughs> that I was in, uh, in, in, my, in my spiritual tradition and get transplanted so I could grow. <laughs> um, yeah. I felt the same way about uh, myself as someone who was aging and still feel that way. I, th I still feel that it's, uh, especially for women um, in this culture, it's just, it's awful that uh, it, the way women are seen in light of aging. I think it should be, you know, I, I, I was at a, I attended a powwow in Saskatoon at the, the their big um, arena, and uh, I I wept because you know I've I've been invited and attended many uh, powwows and uh, there was just this one moment there where I was struck because I felt like um, this is the only culture I've really ever stood in where the grandmothers go out to dance and everybody stands. Mm. and in honor yeah. of them. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've never experienced that anywhere else. And um, it's so moving to me that they're out there dancing at whatever capacity they can dance, and it's honored. Yeah. They yeah. don't have to be on a pole, <laughs> you know, doing some sort of pole dancing exercises when they're 65 or 70 and still looking like they're 20. You know what I'm saying? It's just like that's what gets honored otherwise in this culture is, yeah. oh, you don't look like you're that age. You look so young. You look so you still have sex appeal. You still have, you know, all this stuff. And and I just uh, I needed to get away from that. It was, it was particularly, I think I rebelled <laughs> because I had been in the music industry, uh, for so long. And that, that's just so much a part of it. Hmm. So yeah, that, I get, I don't know if that answers the, <laughs> the motherhood question or not, but, um, there's a softness that comes, uh, with that and an acceptance of generativity, um, 
that it's not all about me and, um, you know, I have to become about life and the future of this planet um, yep. and all of that, you know. And again, it's same going back to the indigenous traditions. They have that seventh unborn generation built right in and that and any decision that got made um the seventh unborn generation was considered and what would things look like if we were all uh, doing that politically you know in our families etc yeah yeah I'm, I'm really struck by the thing you said about being an adolescent culture and uh and particularly in the way we argue and it it strikes me that like i think a lot of us feel or or in contrast to to being an adult or being a mother or being a father uh whether that's literal and it's helpful to think of that not just literally but i i th- if it's not just literal it's a it's a transition into a time of life when one has responsibilities towards a particular life with all the with all the messiness and compromises that come with with loving uh something someone particular in a particular place and and i and i think part of part of what i sort of the kind of political conversation that goes on so much of it just feels like it feels like teenagers in the basement raging against the machine um in which they have no you know their relationship to it is is quite abstract yeah, yeah. Uh, if if at all and and i think part part of the dilemma for so many of us is the machine is so huge that there there are very few uh kind of experiences where where we experience ourselves as responsible custodians of of the larger uh society and so so we all end up, you know, experiencing this sort of experience of the, the sort of the frustrated, impotent adolescent who's who's still in the basement, you know, fantasizing about one day when he'll, you know, he or she will have his say and take take their turn at the helm. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and the fact is, you know, you can be 40, 50 years old today in a world where 60, you 70. hardly experience that you you that you have any hands on the controls the thing the machine is just so massive and so beyond us uh that that you know we're we're reduced to having these sort of abstract arguments on on facebook or something Mm -hmm. um and and the place yeah the places to sort of put energy in an active way uh and a custodial way it's uh I think that's that's becoming increasingly rare for well for folks. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's it's cultural too in the sense that uh, we we are we have a heritage now of people in their seventies who at one point in their life said don't trust anyone over thirty. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, what do you do with that? Oh, I'm seventy now, right? Uh, do I trust myself? <laughs> right. Um, and. And so w- with that heritage in place and also this, the, the extreme individualism, and I am, you know, as guilty as anybody else um, 
you know, with the balance, striking the balance of somebody who puts her music out there and has to, you know, have a face to, to do that. Um, there's this extreme individualism that would say, oh, I have to get, uh, I have to be responsible publicly. I get, I, I need the, some medal of honor for the yeah. work that I do and it has to be big and it has to go big or go home. Whereas, you know, in, in our tradition, um, we have these people who didn't do that to, to light the way, you know, Therese of Lisieux, the little flower who said, you know, the little way, um, you know, little things. Now I want to ask you about, so, so Therese of Lisieux or, or, uh, Richard Rohr or Thomas Merton, also people that you've discipled yourself to in in significant ways. Those are all people that pursued a life of simplicity, which is what you know, what you're getting at. But they they pursued that life of simplicity inside of established religious communities. Yeah. Your life is on the is outside the walls of the cloister, as it were. Talk about some of the precarity of that, both the freedom and the insecurity, uh, financially, also spiritually, of of this path that you've chosen as the as an artist path outside of uh, a kind of established community right outside of an established uh you know position <laughs> at all <laughs> yeah like Therese of Lisieux and like in a way she it's she can say you know she can give everything away in a context where there is there is this mothership that she's inside of that's that's going yeah. to you know in a basic way at least i know like look after her like uh my but f- my friend morgan atkinson he's done two beautiful documentaries on thomas merton and at the end of one of the one of the documentaries it shows uh merton's possessions what he had it amounted including his flight home which he never was able to take you know from bangkok it amounted to about mm. 300 dollars or something like his pants, his shoes, his his flight, and and some some of his books or something. Now that I I honor it. I I obviously I'm I've made an album using Thomas Merton's words and I'm, have am indebted to him and and his way of seeing. Uh, and that being said, uh, you know if if I went tomorrow. I have I live in a 1970s trailer. <laughs> I have a used car. Uh but I would have to include uh the oversized stuffed dog that my children are in love with. <laughs> like the you know the the toys that my children have right now. Um all of them are used mo- most of them except for some people gave them some new stuff at Christmas. Um, like I, I would have to include the things that I need to be a mother. Um, yeah. you know, their car seats, <laughs> and, uh, in order to obey the law, I am, you know, required to have car seats that, uh, haven't expired or whatever, you know, and, uh, their snow suits that were passed down to me are still very valuable because they're from Mountain Equipment Co-op. You know, all, all these things um, that uh, somebody who took the path of not having children and took the path of 
being cared for within the cloister um, didn't have to, they don't have to show that, you know. And so I think um, this is, I think you're, you've hit the crux of, of our time. Uh, you know, Diana Butler Bass, uh, in her last book, I think she said, she talked about the rise of the mystics. And she sort of, you know, she's a data-oriented person, so she's looking at the data. She's not looking at ideology. She's not looking at what she hopes for. There's, you know, mm. there... Yeah. Um, and we've had these different iterations and labels for it, you know, new monasticism and and all the rest. And we do here abide by a rule, um, and we also abide by a, a sacred schedule. We chant the psalms in the morning, uh, hmm. and we go through um, we go through uh, a liturgy. And you know, my one and a half year old says "Ameni" for "Amen" <laughs> whenever she, mm. he hears us mm. he hears us uh, pray the Lord's prayer every day. So we have. Uh, we are we are in the tradition, but we're not officially in the tradition. We've considered, you know, third order Franciscan, and so far mm. we're, we're nothing's uh, resonating at such a level that we feel like we have to take action on it at this point. But um, yeah, it's there's definitely I think there's pockets of people asking this question all the time. Um, you know, it's one thing not to take, uh, you know, for instance, it's one thing not to take the whatever revenue you make from the sale of a book or an album if you are within a community. Uh, and so I think there's going to be like people there. There are all over. There's pockets, whether it's within the Christian tradition or not. There's permaculture communities cropping up um, with and without that tradition. And so people are trying things, uh, people will fail at things, it'll evolve. Um, for myself, I do feel that if I stay with one foot honoring, particularly the Benedictine monastic tradition and the way it perceived work and life, uh, it will serve me and hopefully the world. But uh, I still don't have any concrete answers uh, I think it's all in evolution right now as far as how everyday folks like us um, embrace some form of monasticism. And I'm talking about monasticism in the in the light of how Merton saw it, which is to, you know, basically go below the surface to that inner secret that cannot be destroyed. Find mm. ways to do that. And, and so... I don't see how just coming up with something brand new is going to cut it. <laughs> yeah. Are there are there like are there people like is there like how would you 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 say you you know you haven't joined say the third order franciscans um if you were going to you know draw a kind of diagram of the the people and places that hold hold you in being as someone who is orienting within a particular tradition who who's in that picture um for you well my teachers for sure 
uh, and some friends that I have made over the last five years. And a lot of it is online, to be honest, and over the phone. Um, when it comes to right now, because we just moved in the last four months, yeah. uh, I had a community where we were uh, that that held, held me. Um, right now, my old community that held me was in Winnipeg, St. Benedict's Table, and it still does to a certain degree. Um, but I think it's, again, you're a- addressing a difficult issue because... I think it's this uh, struggle that I have with not wanting to expose my children to, well, for instance, just a lack, I guess, of creativity or imagination uh, in Sunday school (laughs) in the sense that we're going to use that same old jelly bean poem (laughs) that uses the black jelly bean as the bad guy and the white, the red one as the blood and the white one that you get to turn into afterwards. Oh boy. Um, and, and I don't know that poem, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm cringing at the possibilities. Well, and, and this, I've seen this in Anglican churches. It's not just in evangelical churches. It's there's a, <laughs> a, a and I think it's because there there's the, the material just seems to be old or tired or, and I really don't, I, I, I don't want to, exp- I've sat there and then that's how, you know, what my children were exposed to. And also an indigenous child in the room who sees the jelly bean yeah, of yeah. color. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and goes, oh, I guess I'm bad. <laughs> it's just like, um, or is making angels. And, of course, you have to make the angels blonde and white and yeah. all the rest of it, all yeah. these crafts. And so, so... If I, I, I'm complaining about it, but I'm not in a position at this point to bring my prophetic imagination, <laughs> if, if I have any uh, in that uh, direction, maybe in, in the future. But it's also not something I want necessarily to be my children's Sunday school teacher. <laughs> um, right, so yeah. It, it's hard. It's, it's very hard. hard. I, it's very, very yeah. hard. Everybody's, it, not everybody, but a lot of people are in that spot. They just are. It's interesting to hear you say, like the the first thing you said was uh, the importance of your teachers. And uh, I have a a couple friends who are Buddhists. um, And one of the things I've gotten a sense of from them is that in the Buddhist tradition, you know, rather than spiritual lineage being organized on, say, denominational lines, uh, it's it's much more in terms of relationship to particular teachers that that one attaches oneself to, and I I've sometimes wondered if if that is a shape, uh, you know, a social form that is is on its way to becoming a, a, at least a significant, if not a predominant one, in in the Christian tradition. Well, I think spiritual direction has always had a place in in the Catholic tradition, but it's expanded so much over the last yes. 10, 15 years. Yeah. yeah, 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 that would definitely be an example of that phenomenon. Yeah, I think it's definitely yeah. in that realm. I know so many young, like 20-year-olds <laughs> who yeah. are in spiritual direction. So that's, yeah. to me, it is, um, it's an interesting time. That's all I can say. It's just, it's an interesting time of, 
of not being able to nail it down. You can't, it's not, you can't do it. It's, it's a, a time of, no. of transition and a time of evolution and a time uh, where that wisdom of the, what I started off this conversation, the wisdom of, of recognizing that the whole on that was before is needed, but the, that whole on doesn't need the one that's coming after it. So there's going to be friction. There's going to be defensiveness. And uh, for me, it's that whole, how do you balance this out in the way in which we dialogue how do we be the change, I guess, as, as people who present an argument, um, as people who speak out, choosing when to speak out? Um, you know, uh, my, one of my great teachers and uh, someone I respect dearly, Cynthia Bergeau, um, her, uh, her first husband, he's, he was a music teacher, and he said, um, he often would say about, the way people argued or <laughs> is that it was the right note played at the wrong time. Um, mm. and so, uh, how, how do we, how do we carry the heritage of, of, you know, for as someone like you, uh, for instance, uh, I would say influenced by Bonhoeffer, um, and the heritage of people who kept silent in Germany and this, uh, how do we hold wisdom and at what, at what point are we hiding behind it? And at what point is it wise to use our words? Um, and so I, I'm always just, you know, asking, is this the right time? You know, does it need yeah. to be said? Uh, does it need to be said by me? <laughs> right. um, and, uh, and then Cynthia would say, does it need to be said now? So the, these yeah. using these wisdom measurements as we move forward, because again, we are an entire people traumatized by people who kept silent at that time. We really are. We're, we are afraid that it will happen again and it can happen again. And so how do we navigate that? Um, but at, uh, you're talking, you're talking about, uh, the the silence like when you're talking about Bonhoeffer you're talking about the silence yeah. of the Christian yes. church in Germany as as the Nazi machine went yes. steamrolling over the country and yes. and the inability of of almost the entire church to to name the moment for yes. what it was uh and and to speak truth uh as as the the veil of lies uh, just got thicker yes, and thicker. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. It can happen again. Yeah. Uh, in some some ways, it's always happening in whatever um, form, not to the degree, um, but it it in the sense that uh, I'm I'm c consistently as I go about my day, as I dialogue with people, as I decide what I what song I'm going to release, yeah. etc. Uh, what what am I going to post on social media? All the rest of it, I I try to find um, markers for wisdom as I move through it, and ask if it's going to help or hinder. And yeah. um, knowing that the that the heart of the matter is that the intention to not stay silent is a good intention. Um, yeah. 
Well, on that note, I have to say, Alana, like I'm just so uh, grateful for the the combination of of wisdom and and courage and insight uh, in terms of like some songs like "Ring Out Wild Wild Bells" that you released at at New Year's, uh, uh, giving giving music to Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, which is just so poignant for our time in terms of uh, naming the 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 deep hunger that so many of us have to to ring out an age of of lies and injustice and ring in a an age of peace um and and also your own song recently no matter what kings say uh which was your your response to uh to the president of the united states referring to uh to people from poor countries as as you know, why are those people from shithole countries? Why are we letting them in here? Um, that that's something that it's clear to me that you are that you know that something needs to be said. Uh, and but there's there's consistently a transposing of of the kind of, you know, the, the particular shitstorm with the particular person of the moment saying something you know, ridiculous and and stupid, and transposing that into the the larger context in which, as, as you say, you know, in the final line of of uh, no matter what kings say, the bystanders who stand by and and play by all the rules are are really all of us. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, without the we in there, even, it's, yeah, as, it's as 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 guilty as. <laughs> Like as as much as we need to name the 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 sin in public life, there's there's really none of us are without sin to cast the first stone, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, and again, it's like the, it's always this balance because some people don't have the choice; uh, they're in a position that is they they have to face it every day. Uh, particularly uh, something like that, uh, those nations being uh, ridiculed and the people that are visible representations of those nations in America. Uh, that is, it, it's ridiculous and it's foolish and silly, but um, children heard that. And when, yeah. and again, it's like, I'm in this place, uh, I'm a mother. And I just know how sensitive and beautiful my children are. And if Mm. they had to hear something that disparaged them like that, what it would do uh, to their development is just, it, it gets me. So I think that part of the reason why I can, I, I chose to speak out about that is I was really thinking about uh, about that next generation in America and mm. everywhere else and how their experience growing up is going to determine so much and all of these people will be gone that are that are disparaging mm. them like that. They'll be long gone um, because we're mortal. And so... Um, yeah, I think that's sort of my measuring stick these days is what choices are we making? How do we um how do we vote for the future? 
There's one other kind of speaking out that I want to ask you about, and then we should probably wrap this up. Um, And that is, we haven't talked yet about uh, the the six-year... Uh, span of silence uh, for you musically as an artist uh, and and the and the change in your music between those two times I remember uh, bumping into you and uh, and hearing you say something like this was this was in your uh, in your early days uh, as a kind of up-and-coming alt alt country folk singer songwriter um, that was uh, you know, rapidly uh, rising to some significant heights. Uh, I'm thinking about some pretty big shows in Nashville. Um, and at that time, I remember you saying something like, uh, you know, people's connection with God is their business. That's not my business. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, And then six years later, you very much made it your business to be a kind of midwife <laughs> to... Uh, the the souls reaching out to the divine and the divines reaching towards the soul. Um, I think that the journey was one of, uh, first of all, being traumatized by um, music that was solely um, agenda-based. Uh, mm. Not wanting to be associated with that ever to the yeah. point where I, I would... Uh, uh, almost violently protect myself <laughs> with, you know, just with my words, um, against, uh, going there, I guess. Um, and so, and, and sort of seeing the, just a parallel universe that was just mirroring pop culture and really had no, um, agency or sense of, uh, of, salting you know the earth really it was just sort of what can sell but we'll just put some christian language we'll just sell jesus instead of selling yeah selena you know the jesus girlfriend type music whatever yeah so uh, that was part of it and then also it was my journey um of realizing what it really kind of what this tradition was pointing to which was never, you know, when you when you are sort of entrained to see that the the tradition's pointing to simply uh, sin, salvation, heaven uh, narrative. I really, a part of it was just being, I guess, true to myself that I really didn't want to impose that narrative onto other people. So when mm. I said when yeah. I said what I said, it was because I was internally wrestling with the narrative <laughs> um, mm. that if that's God, I'm not going to be imposing that. And, and I wouldn't say that anything that I do these days is an imposition. It's not attended, intended to be anything that um, people aren't ready for, I guess. Um, but I'm drawn now as someone who sees that every bush is a flame and I must mm. walk with my feet bare to mm. see how Wendell Berry said the whole shooting match is sacred. And now that mm. I, now that uh, I guess the blind um, can see <laughs> or get cap, I, I capture glimpses of it. The veil gets lifted now and again. Um, and I try to have a 
fidelity to um, the, the glimpse. Um, that's, I guess, that's how I ended up um, making music that wants to be poetic about the incarnation <laughs> and how precious that is and how important it is on the, on the world stage, really. Um, that if, if, uh, the religions have shovels to dig deep with, uh, we need the shovel of, of the incarnation and the Trinity. And it's something I feel, um, committed to, I guess. And, and it, it brings out the poetry in me. So. Mm. Well, thanks so much for for not giving in to to selling the counterfeit and uh, and waiting until the the real was was blooming and aflame enough in you that it just spoke for itself. It's uh, I'm just so uh, pleased and proud as punch to be associated with you in this this podcast uh, journey of of culturing the the revolution of love and uh yeah likewise yeah, marcus totally um good stuff <laughs> when the desert called my name it echoed near and There I was ashamed Out under the stars She looks lost and lonely Said the sand dune to the ghost But you find your way no mistake when the desert calls your name in the absence of the raindrop in the deepening Felt your silence all around The thirsting of my heart She looks lost and lonely Said the sand dune to the ghost But you find your way no mistake when the desert calls your name well, it's been said that it's a lucky dark if you find yourself so I'll thank my lucky stars and try to be a real brave 
just like a bed Sure, I'm lost and lonely Just like the sand dune and the ghost But you find your way, make no mistake When the desert calls your name You get to start out for promised land when the desert calls your name we are the ferment you are too thanks for listening until next time breathe consciously and with love eat consciously and with love Attend the creation. Attend the divine. And name the real consciously and with love. Peace and all good. <laughs>